The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. I really bring to the role a passion to bring medicines to patients, improve the health of the world. I really deeply believe in the mission of the company to reimagine medicine, and that's what we continue to work on. That's Vaz Narasimhan, CEO of Novartis, one of the world's largest and most innovative pharmaceutical companies. Vaz is the visionary leader behind Novartis's extraordinary achievements in recent years, as it develops new therapies to combat some of the world's most serious diseases. Welcome to Episode 9 of In The Know. In this episode, Vaz joins Hamish Douglas, Magellan's Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, to discuss those transformative therapies. In particular, four key developments in gene, cell and radiolie gland therapies and RNA therapeutics. The interview provides real hope that these therapies can offer a way forward for patients facing serious illness. Also under discussion, the task of commercialization, pricing, building partnerships to deliver therapies globally, perspectives on the healthcare system in the United States, and where Novartis stands in this highly competitive field of gene and other medical breakthroughs. First, here's Hamish. Welcome back. My name is Hamish Douglas and I'm Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Magellan Asset Management. Today, I'm extremely excited with the interview I'm doing. Often we're talking about companies that are maybe rolling out hand sanitizer around the world or stock exchange trying to change a mortgage industry and deliver efficiencies. We've been talking about geopolitics around the world, but it's very rare we truly get to talk about things that can really change the course of humanity and change the world. And today I'm speaking with Chief Executive of Novartis. And Novartis is one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. I think you're in for a real treat here. Novartis is a company that is developing some very, very exciting new platforms. And these platforms really have the potential to change the course of how medical science advances and cure potentially some diseases and lengthen and improve people's lives. And it's very, very rare we get to talk about companies that can truly change people's lives and in fact, save people's lives. So Vaz, I'd like to welcome you to In The Know. It's been a very long-term investment in Novartis from Magellan. And this is a very long-term story. This isn't a short-term story in the business you're in. It is the ultimate long-term game. And maybe you could start with providing our listeners with a little bit of a background on yourself, you know, how you became interested in medical science and your journey to becoming chief executive, I would argue one of the most important companies in the world today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Hamish. It's great to be here. Very much appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to speak to the listeners. My background is a little non-traditional, I think, for many CEOs. I'm a son of immigrant parents from India. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
that took me on a journey ultimately to get a medical degree at Harvard Medical School. And actually, my initial plan was to work in developing countries. So I spent quite a bit of time in places around Africa, Peru, working on the challenge then of HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. But I realized the business world offered the opportunity to bring innovations at scale to patients. And that's very much what I wanted to do with my life. So after a brief stint at McKinsey, I joined Novartis. And at Novartis, I've held a range of different roles, mostly in the world of R&D. I spent eight years at our vaccines business, also had roles in the commercial world and the manufacturing world. And then most recently, before becoming CEO, four years as the head of drug development and chief medical officer. I really bring to the role a passion to bring medicines to patients, improve the health of the world. I really deeply believe in the mission of the company to reimagine medicine. And that's what we continue to work on also with the platforms that you mentioned. And Vaz, you're talking about reimagining medicines. And I think that's one thing that Novartis really does. And people may not be aware on this call, but Novartis is developing not one, not two, but really four key platforms with new approaches to treating diseases. And these platforms are gene therapy, cell therapy, radiolygland therapy, and new RNA-targeting therapeutics. You know, at a high level, maybe in simple terms, just explain to our listeners a little bit about each of these platforms. Yeah, I can start by providing a little bit of historical context. And it's worth noting that Novartis is over a 200-year-old company in many ways. And if you look at the arc of medicine, we started out with chemicals, chemistry, that created the first round of medicines from the late 1800s through the 1950s, 60s, 70s, as we learned how to target chemicals to various parts of the body, so-called small molecule medicines. Then we had a biologics revolution, and this is protein-based therapeutics, that started in the 1980s and continued through today, and that was the second wave. What we believe now is the time to invest in a next wave of therapeutics, and each one of them has a little bit of a, a different approach. Cell and gene therapies try to harness the genome within cells to cure diseases. Cell therapies, we take cells out of the body, we reprogram those cells to either fight cancer and maybe in the future regenerate heart cells, maybe in the future cure enzyme replacement therapies. And if you've heard about the Nobel Prize for CRISPR therapies, the hope is this can be harnessed through using cell therapeutics. Take cells out, use CRISPR to reprogram the cells, put the cells back in the body. The second platform is gene therapies. And this is the idea that you can use a harmless virus to replace or augment a genetic gene that's missing in a patient. We've powerfully demonstrated this with a drug called Zolgensma, which we might talk about later. But the idea is there's so many genetic diseases out there that could be cured or at least dramatically impacted by replacing the gene through this kind of virus. And so that's the kind of story of cell and gene therapies. RNA therapeutics, and the world knows so much now about RNA vaccines because of the COVID pandemic, but the concept is similar. The idea is that we know RNA actually is the magic within the body. We used to think it was DNA and proteins. Now we understand that RNAs control so many different parts of how a cell works. And with RNA therapeutics, what you can do is either silence a gene 
or you could augment a gene using what are called small interfering RNAs. So we have two late-stage projects, one that's already approved in Europe, that impact cardiovascular disease with the idea of using these small interfering RNAs. And the last one is radioligand therapy. This is actually a simpler concept. Everybody knows that, hopefully, many of your listeners may know, you can use radiation to treat cancer. But radiation is kind of a non-specific way to treat cancer, and you have lots of side effects and lots of damage to a patient's body. With radioligand therapy, we try to give micro doses of radiation to the specific cancer cells that we want to impact. And actually, we just had a very important validation event around this just a month ago. But that's another exciting way we believe to treat cancers. Each one of these is new areas of medicine that we didn't even have five years ago. And now Novartis has an approved drug in each one of these platform technologies. Vaz, that's absolutely incredible. And obviously, we're at early stages in terms of the types of diseases that could be targeted by these platforms. And I'm using the word platforms. This is different to just discovering a small molecule drug is... Why do you see that these are actual platforms and do you see that Novartis has a first mover advantage and how difficult it is for other companies to sort of enter the space, maybe to roll out manufacturing facilities and distribution facilities, you know, how difficult is this to really, if you find a cure, to actually get it to doctors and patients? That is the challenge, I think, with each one of these new technologies. There's a lot of work and puzzles that have to be solved within R&D, manufacturing, and commercialization. When we think of a platform, we think of something that could allow us to generate multiple new drugs, ideally across therapeutic areas, but not necessarily, that has a unique manufacturing, which uh, provides some barriers to entry and know-how that we're creating. And then a unique commercialization approach that doesn't necessarily need to be the case, but there tends to be also unique commercialization approach with each of these. What I would say, what we've tried to do over the recent years is build up a leading position in all three of those areas. So in, in each one of these, we have multiple R&D programs that are currently advancing in the clinic. In manufacturing, to my knowledge, we're the largest producer of gene therapies, cell therapies, radioligand therapies, and soon RNA interfering therapies. So we have scale in manufacturing. And then with that, we've learned how to navigate the regulatory landscape in each one of these areas. And now we're building scale from a commercial standpoint. Our cell therapy, Kimraya, is registered in over 30 countries. Our gene therapy, Zolgensma, registered in over 30 countries. Our radioligand therapy, Lutathera, similarly. And most recently, our RNA therapeutic called Lecvio in Europe to treat cholesterol, elevated cholesterol, is already approved in the European Union and soon, hopefully, around the world. So we think we've built the scale with that, the know-how, and also the breadth. And we're entering the next phase now. How do we actually consistently deliver these therapies to patients around the world? And Vaz, is it fair to say that if a, another small company, and there's lots of companies doing R&D, finds a new, say, gene or cell therapy there, that many of these companies simply won't have the capability to manufacture and distribute, and they're going to be few players in the world where they can go to actually get these drugs commercialized. And that will be an advantage of your platforms here? That's one of the theses we have, that it takes a lot of capital, it takes a lot of expertise and know-how to build up the infrastructure that we've built in each of these areas. And while 
of course, understandably, many smaller companies believe they can walk that difficult road. I think we all know that's a very difficult road and often one, especially in new technology areas, often not successful. So we believe we become the partner of choice for many of these companies. If you look at radioligan therapy just in the last month, we signed two early stage deals to broaden our portfolio. And as far as I know, there's no other large pharmaceutical company with the scale we have in radioligand therapy. Similarly, in gene therapy, with the only gene therapy approved in broad scale around the world, we again become the partner of choice. I mean, we have deep expertise in manufacturing and commercializing gene therapies. So I think over time, that will allow us to hopefully build a broader and broader portfolio, not only leveraging our own internal R&D, but the entire biotech ecosystem. And Fez, maybe we can bring this to life for our listeners. You earlier mentioned a gene therapy drug that you've currently commercialised, Zolgemsma. Maybe you could just outline what is that drug doing? What disease is it treating? Is it a cure or is it just a therapeutic here that's sort of increasing the standard of care but not curing something? And just how large is the market for just a single drug for a single indication like that? Yeah, you know, Zolgensma is an extraordinary story. And when you meet the patients, when you meet these children whose lives have been transformed, the families, it really comes to life. So Zolgensma treats a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. It's a terrible disease. It has different forms. But in its most severe form, a child typically doesn't live through the child's first year of life. If the child has one of the less severe forms, often the child is bedridden, has long-term medical care, which involves feeding tubes and breathing tubes. In a best-case scenario, may live to teens or 20s, but with severe disability. The reason this disease happens is because a protein is missing. The SMN1 protein is missing in the body, and this leads to muscles not working as they normally should. What Zolgensma does is it's a modified virus that delivers this protein that's missing, one of the proteins that's missing, and corrects the defect. We've seen extraordinary results. We know that if Zolgensma is given early enough in a child's life, the child can live almost, in some cases, a completely normal life. We have children who received Zolgensma six, seven years ago, walking into elementary school like a normal child. I mean, it's the kind of thing that brings tears to your eyes when you see the story that this medicine can create. So for those children, it is effectively a cure. For children given Zolgensma later on in life, it's proven to give pretty extraordinary results that we consistently see. Now, Zolgensma has consistently been found one of the most cost-effective medicines in the world, despite a list price of over $2 million in the United States, in the UK. Government after government says, dollar for dollar, this is just an extraordinary investment. And some of the toughest cost-effectiveness bodies have said that. And so right now, we are licensed in most parts of the world under two years of age for this treatment. In some parts of the world, we can treat older kids as well. We believe with this first version of Zolgensma, we can reach $2 billion of sales just with a single indication. But we continue to work to also make this gene therapy available to children over two years of age. And then, of course, the possibilities from a sales perspective are even bigger. So it just gives you a sense that when you get it right with a gene therapy, and it can also happen with a cell therapy, or Kim Raya's story is a similar one, you have extraordinary patient impact, most importantly, but an outstanding business result as well. Right now, Zolgensma is trending already to be over a billion dollars in sales this year. 
Vaz, that is absolutely extraordinary. And I'm sure incredibly touching for all the families who have been lucky enough that their children received the treatment so far. That is one drug of gene therapy and two billion of sales. And maybe if the indications expanded, it could go above two billion of sales from one drug. You know, how deep is the current pipeline, not just within Novartis, but by other pharmaceutical companies for future gene therapies? And what diseases is the scientific community working on at the moment? It's an exciting time, but also a time I should caution that we're learning a lot. And I actually would argue Novartis, with the Zolgensma experience, is very high up the learning curve, which gives us a higher probability of success, we believe, on future gene therapies. But overall in the industry, there are hundreds, many hundreds now of gene therapies, either nearing the clinic or in the clinic. They generally target two types of diseases, either genetic diseases where a gene is malfunctioning, There's a few thousand such indications, but probably a few hundred that are being targeted right now. And then on a more ambitious level, can you treat diseases that are so-called polygenic, meaning they have multiple genes affecting them? You could think of things like uh, Alzheimer's disease and, and dementia. You can think of some types of cardiovascular disease. And these are more ambitious projects, but also out there in the industry. Right now, Novartis is in a place where we have over 10 programs, maybe now 14 programs that are somewhere in late-stage research or entering the clinic. Our goal is to have two new gene therapies enter the clinic each year so that following 2025 and beyond, we could be in a place where we're regularly launching gene therapies year on year. We tend to focus on very severe diseases where we think the gene therapy can have a very large therapeutic effect. What we've learned through Zolgensma is you have a much easier course on the commercialization journey if you have a big therapeutic effect for the child or the patient. But other companies are working on on opportunities where you have less of a therapeutic effect, but bigger patient populations. And those are kind of the strategic choices different companies will have to make. But a very exciting time in gene therapies, to be sure. Vaz, I'm going to move on to a cancer platform, and obviously you've got a lot of oncology drugs, but your radio ligand platform, you've just announced recently a new therapy for treating very advanced prostate cancer. Maybe you could just explain how this therapy works. What is a prognosis for people with this type of advanced stage prostate cancer, and what is the treatment regime so far? And How big is just this market and what is the breakthrough that you're seeing with this type of treatment? Yeah, I'm really excited about our radio ligand therapy platform. I mean, this was one where Novartis took a bet on two companies we acquired. One was called Advanced Accelerator Applications. The other was called Endocyte. And that immediately made us the largest producer of these therapeutics in the world with a global manufacturing capability, patient delivery capability, et cetera. The idea, as I mentioned earlier, is can you find a molecule that is very specific to a type of cancer, link it using very advanced chemistry technology to a nuclear particle, and then give it in the body at very low doses, and then kill the cancer over four infusions, and that's it. The nuclear radiologist gives the drug four times, and then you see what the effect is. In the first drug we launched, Lutathera, which we believe has the possibility to become a billion-dollar drug on its own, we saw very dramatic results in patients with a type of cancer called neuroendocrine tumors that had failed other lines of therapy. Pretty important gains in progression-free survival. 
So the next medicine, the one we just reached the phase three results on, targets, as you mentioned, prostate cancer. It's a drug not named yet, but it has the kind of inelegant name LU-PSMA, but we'll get a better brand name. I think you need to work on that one. Yeah, exactly. We'll, We'll work on it. But the idea here is we had a the PSMA protein is something we know is expressed differentially on prostate cancer cells. And so the idea was to link it to lutetium, LU, which is the nuclear particle, and target to the cancer. Here we took last line patients who had failed all other lines of therapy in prostate cancer, and we saw benefits in both overall survival and progression-free survival, statistically significant. And we'll release those full results this summer. But I think it's a powerful validation that we've now had two different cancers, last line of therapy, and we show that these therapies work after four infusions. And now the idea in both of those cancers is to move into earlier lines of therapy where we think maybe the therapeutic benefit could be even bigger. And so those studies are all ongoing. And then what's exciting is we've already built a, I think, a rapidly progressing clinical portfolio. We have two other radioligand therapies in phase two trials. We have two others entering the clinic. We just signed two additional deals in the last month. And so we're excited. We think in solid tumors, this is a place where we're alone. I think it would take many, many years for any of our competitors to catch up given the amount of know-how we have. And the opportunity is significant to have big therapeutic benefits for these cancer patients. And just for our listeners, what are the sort of solid tumors that this may be applicable to? Just to put it in context of cancers that people are fearful of in their lives where there's solid state tumors where really we haven't found the magic bullets yet in medicine. I mean, this is what's really exciting about this. There's so many different cancers we see that could be targeted by this therapy. I mean, we are exploring lung cancer. We're exploring gastric cancer. We have ideas to move in the full range of solid tumors, potentially very difficult to treat cancers like pancreatic cancers. So the really opportunity here is we have such a broad range of solid tumors we could target with this therapy. And we're only just at the beginning. I mean, we're learning so much every year as we do this. So I'm quite excited to see really what's possible. And again, the extraordinary thing actually with all of these therapies other than the RNA interfering therapy is that you give this one time in the case of gene therapy and cell therapy and radioligand therapy, it's four infusions and then the benefit accrues over years and years and years and years. And that's a very difficult thing to find in our industry. And Vaz, just for our listeners here, just so they can really appreciate it, radioligand therapy, not only do you have to find the very complex molecular science here for the delivery of what's going to attach this to the particular type of cancer, so there's enormous science in that, but you're dealing with nuclear medicine, and this has to be manufactured, and then it has to be delivered on a global basis. So you must be developing both the manufacturing side for the delivery and the deep science about the actual mechanism molecularly to get this nuclear medicine to only attack the cancer and not kill your brain or something. It's extraordinary. It's worth noting that this technology is a spin-out from the CERN center, the particle accelerator that exists across the border in France and Switzerland. So this is pretty advanced technology. And so the scientists that started Advanced Accelerator Applications came from that center. So we have built up deep expertise in being able to handle these nuclear materials, doing what's called the radio conjugation, so attaching the particle 
to the protein or whatever else the drug is that's being used to deliver the nuclear particle. It's worth noting as well, you need a infrastructure that enables you to deliver this therapy within three days of the physician ordering it. Because as soon as we conjugate the drug and the nuclear particle together, the clock starts with the half-life of the nuclear particle. So there's a lot of expertise and know-how that goes into this. This is not something that a company could just wake up tomorrow and want to get into. And we continue to work through the various partnerships that we're doing to build stronger and stronger capabilities across every element of the supply chain. And Vaz, you mentioned just before I ask that question about RNA therapeutics, and you've recently announced your high cholesterol vaccine effectively. How does this drug really work? You know, people may think you have a statin and people take a pill and it lowers their cholesterol. What really is the unmedical need here in terms of cholesterol? And why is it that this RNA therapeutic has the potential to make such a massive difference? Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. I think this is a medicine that probably the street underestimates, and I can understand why, but it's important to understand the context. First, cardiovascular disease is the largest cause of death and disability in the world. And so this is something all healthcare systems want to target. Second, we know that while LDL cholesterol is the single most important risk factor for cardiovascular events, patients are not good at staying on their statins because statins have side effects and statins require a lot of discipline to stay on. And because of that, we know in many major markets, less than 50% of patients really stay on their statins. And so the idea here with LecVio is you use RNA interference technology to block a protein called PCSK9, which is involved in the creation of LDL cholesterol. And what we have found is with two administrations, they take 30-second injections, kind of like a vaccine, absolutely, in the physician's office a year, you can reduce the LDL cholesterol 55 to 60%, and it stays down for that entire six-month period. So pretty extraordinary results. And so our goal is to argue to healthcare systems around the world that this is a medicine that can allow them to tackle cardiovascular disease at scale and get this incredibly difficult burden of cost and patient burden hopefully improved in their system. The biggest milestone we have coming up this year after our European approval is in the UK, the NHS plans to launch Lecvio through the NHS to all patients in the United Kingdom who've had a prior heart attack and have elevated cholesterol. If we can deliver on the promise in the UK, it would be the largest drug in the history of UK pharmaceuticals. And of course, we have a lot of work to do to get there, but that's very much our aspiration. We're taking a similar approach in US healthcare systems, going system by system, and arguing to them at the system level, let's take on cardiovascular disease with this medicine, which a physician can administer during their normal visit, and the patient has the cholesterol benefit for six months. If you can imagine in China, the opportunity there to tackle cholesterol and cardiovascular disease again at scale is immense. So we're working as fast as we can to get the medicine approved in China. So a lot of opportunity. And given the benefit for society and the healthcare system of obviously preventing heart attacks in just huge numbers of people and maybe strokes as well, are you thinking about at a system level performance-based pricing of this drug? Obviously, take up at scale could make an enormous difference to the health burden of systems. Are you thinking of just pricing this normally or are you thinking outside the box here? 
You know, one of the things we're committed to at Novartis is to win the battle of value-based pricing. I think in the long run, we're better served when we create highly effective medicines and price them in a value-based way. So what does that mean with Lecvio? That means we're pricing the medicine with the idea to drive volume. And so we're in the range of recently uh, one of the U.S. cost-effectiveness bodies. It's called ICER. Said Lecvio will be cost-effective at the ranges that at least we're contemplating the pricing at. In the U.K., we're working with nice. And really, the idea here is to drive significant volumes. And if you look down the line, the vision for this medicine, this is what we talk about here is so-called secondary prevention. That's patients who've already had a heart attack. The transformative opportunity, which we're starting clinical trials on later this year or early next year, is in primary prevention. What if you could prevent the first heart attack? What well, if you it seems a, crazy to wait for people to have a heart attack before you give them the drug. That's, yeah, exactly. And what if you had a vaccine against heart attacks? And you think about the possibility, the size of that market. I mean, it's, you know, then you were talking of many hundreds of millions of patients around the world. And so we, of course, have to think about the pricing differently for this medicine. But the interesting thing about RNA therapeutics as well is the cost of goods, if you do it well at scale, which we're working on, we believe we can get to be small molecule cost of goods. So you have an advanced therapy with small molecule cost of goods, and you can see that the the equation here could be really attractive. Well, maybe we're talking about pricing and the healthcare system. We've got a new administration with President Biden in the United States. They've They've made two announcements so far. They've announced a massive fiscal stimulus program. They've announced an infrastructure program, but they've also foreshadowed that healthcare could be leg three to this stool leading before the midterms in 2022. And Bernie Sanders is talking about and potentially an expansion of their Medicare program, which is over 65s is their program who are eligible for their sort of Medicare program in the United States. States and also talking about maybe trying to get more efficient drug pricing, maybe allowing them to negotiate directly as a government, which they're prohibited from doing at the moment, or maybe even putting a most favoured nations clause in where the US won't pay more than other nominated countries pay for their drugs. How do you think changes would affect the global pharmaceutical industry of the United States is a massive buyer here. There's a massive amounts of R&D that goes in in the world. Where do you think this ball could be headed and how do you view it as one of the chief executives of one of the largest R&D budgets in the world? You know, I think with U.S. healthcare, we know that there are many uh, distortions that need to get corrected. And I would note There's a lot of focus on the pharmaceutical industry, but what I think is interesting right now is there's an increasing recognition that hospitals and healthcare delivery, which is 85 to 90% of the cost, actually are growing faster than the pharmaceuticals budget. And then markups in hospitals of our medicines can be two or three X. So I think there's recognition that this is a complex puzzle as well with the pharmaceutical benefit managers and insurers. So that gives me confidence that we're going to find a a reasonable middle ground. I think a difference at the moment is that our industry is trying to proactively work to find a solution. Because I think we as an industry group believe now that expanding access to medicines will only benefit us in the long term. Tackling affordability at the pharmacy counter is something that needs to happen. And that's ultimately going to benefit us, even if that means we have to cover more 
of the burden that patients face, but in the long run, that's going to benefit us. And creating a more stable system is going to benefit us. So I, I think that, at least I'm hopeful, that the more catastrophic scenarios won't ultimately come to fruition. But we can find a proposal that would reform Medicare Part D and Medicare Part B in a way that patients get broader access to medicines. We as an industry will have to contribute to that. And then we get to a more stable place. Now, whether that can close the budget gaps and all of the other elements of the fiscal stimulus plan, let's see. But that's at least where I see things heading at the moment. Now, it's worth noting that Novartis as a company, we are on the lower end of exposure to the U.S. government programs. I think we're either in our peer set, the second lowest or third lowest, 33% of our sales come from the U.S. So we tend to be more geographically diversified. So regardless of the outcome, I feel good about where Novartis is in the medium to long term. Well, that's somewhat reassuring. And obviously, we're all going to be watching what unfolds in the United States very carefully. Maybe I could just finish. It's been an extraordinary 12 months. With COVID, you have over 100,000 employees. Some of those employees can easily work from home and move to this Zooming world that many of us have been in. And Vaz, you're doing this from your home today. So thank you very much. And I'm actually at my house today as well. So we're lucky we've been able to do this. But many of your employees are R&D people, people working in manufacturing facilities. Your distribution force used to market face-to-face. So how large an impact has this had on your workforce. You must be very proud of what they've been able to achieve over this period. And what are some of the things that have stood out for you and and what things may sort of change moving forward through this period the company's been through? Yeah, it's on all of our minds. Any CEO I talk to, the kind of return to work and what does that mean for our company's longer term is high on the CEO agenda. First, I'd say I'm really proud that the organization had the resilience and agility to still last year deliver 70 billion doses to 800 million patients. It was a solid financial year, not necessarily a stellar one, but all things considered, I think uh, I was very proud of how the organization got through that period. I think a big part of that is our culture. You know, we work very hard to create what we call an unbossed, inspired, curious culture where people are very empowered. So that empowerment carried over right away when we went to a virtual world and had 110,000 people around the company go virtual in one form or another. So I think the organization's in a good place. That said, I think we clearly get the signals. People want to get back to our offices. And what we've committed to is a hybrid working model. We call it choice with responsibility. Let the associates decide how they want to work, but leave our offices in a place where there are collaboration spaces. We estimate it's going to be hugely variable by team and function, but probably most people want to be at our offices three or four days a week is our current guess depending on the area that they work. Research scientists want to be back there every single day, of course, because that's where the magic really happens. I think going ahead, there's a few learnings we have, and it's been interesting. We've learned a lot about what you can do virtually, but also equally important what you can't do virtually. So from an R&D perspective, we have done now 50,000 clinical trial monitoring visits remotely. So without the uh, physician and patient having to see each other, but we did all of this remotely. So we've clearly learned that remote clinical trials is possible, which will allow us to expand the clinical trial sites that we can recruit patients from. At the same time, we learned that when we're working on very cutting edge science, the importance of having some human interaction between our clinician or monitor 
and the physician who's going to have to take on this new therapy area. So these are places where you need to get the people back out engaged, either through a medical function or a clinical trial function. Similar story in the commercial area. We learned that we can expand our reach dramatically by using digital technologies, new engagement tools with customers. But we also learned for new launches, if you want a physician to change their behavior, either to switch to a new drug or initiate a new drug without in a patient population that they've not treated before, you need an empathy-based interaction, which is better done face-to-face. And so we're getting, I think, to a point where we're learning what we can do virtually and what we need to get our people back out there to see human beings face-to-face. And that's kind of the way we're looking at each one of these areas, not looking like digital, some sort of panacea, the virtual world, but there are ways we can use it and ways we can't. And let's try to get the balance right. That's absolutely fascinating. Vaz, I would like to personally thank you. As you know, we've been long-term investors. A lot of what we've spoken about today is very much about the future of the company. We could have talked about some of the amazing large drugs that Novartis has. At the moment, we could go on for hours talking about what the company does. But truly, a company like Novartis is in a very interesting area and certainly improving lives and humanity around the world. So from all of us at Magellan, we'd like to thank you for taking the time and and just all your scientists keep up the great work. It's incredibly exciting for humanity and, and frankly, one of the more important things in our portfolio and, and certainly an investment that requires a lot longer time horizon. And, and this is the thing, a lot of people just bet on single drug results and trade around in pharmaceutical companies. But the true value creation comes over long periods of time here. Absolutely, Hamish. I want to thank you and thank Magellan for believing in our company and being such visionary long-term shareholders. I think the world needs more Magellans and we'd have even better technologies for patients. So a big thank you as well. A pleasure. That was Hamish Douglas, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Magellan, talking to Vaz Narasimhan, CEO of Novartis. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.